We're talking a few weeks before uh, the old enemy game at Wembley, where I hope Scotland put up a good fight. I watched the game. Remember the Lee Griffiths game where he scored two free kicks and England had to yeah, 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 yeah. get it back in the last minute. Unbelievable few minutes of sport because of all the meaning that went into it. But there's a lot of promise. I, there is one very good Scottish player who plays for Liverpool who um, seems to embody the best side of the modern game because 10 years ago... Andrew Robertson was up yeah. in playing in the, I think, the Scottish First Division, actually. And then, of course, played in the Champions League final. Have you ever come close to Andy Robertson? Have you met him? No, I haven't met him, no. Um, I, know, I know Alan Kennedy very well. You know, I played golf with Alan Kennedy. Uh, he scored the goals in the European Cup final. But no, I've not met Andy. I've not met any of the, uh, not any of the current team, to be honest. Um, but Robertson's an, he's an inspiration. I mean, he never stops running. Uh, he just typifies... Scottish football, really. Aggression, you know, even when he gave Messi a tap on the head, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the game against Barcelona. So he, he's been a wonderful... We, we signed him for £8,000. It's incredible, isn't it? And you think him, him and Trent have been a revelation on either side, fullbacks. That was a wonderful back four, you know, with Van Dijk and those two fullbacks and Gomez um, in the back, you know. So hopefully we'll get back there again next year. Yeah, you know? well, it's a big test for the medical staff at the new Melwood. And then, of course, old man Milner. Uh, Milner is an example of one of those players who was ready, like Wayne Rooney, uh, to play as a teenager at the first team. Uh, And it's those players that are so crucial in addressing. My team is Watford, and our spine is a load of 30-somethings. Deeney, Cleverley, Cathcart, Foster. And even if they don't play, and there's a chance that they'll just be squad players... It's so vital yeah. for a work, I call it a workplace, you can call it a dressing room or a training ground, just to have those strong heads. And I'm sure when you were playing in South Africa, um, when you were at Aberdeen, there was a mix of youth and experience. Yeah, there was. Yeah, most, most, most good teams have that. One of the good things about playing at Liverpool in the Central League, which is second team, in those days we used to play in all the big stadiums. Because if Liverpool first team was at Anfield, we'd be playing all the traffic. We'd be playing at Main Road or Newcastle, St James's Park. So you got the experience of playing in these big stadiums against the other reserve teams. And in each reserve team, we had a scattering of players who were experienced, had been in the first team and were on the way out. And the other half was young players like me that were on the way up. So you got a great experience because you know you were able to play against some of the good teams on the big pitches. Some of the ex players who were. Uh, good players, you know, Man United, you get people like David Hard and mm-hmm. uh, even Charlton played in a couple of games, you know, when he was coming back from injury. So you get you get um, that experience. You don't get that so much today because the under-18s, under-23s, you play like, games at places like Wrexham or Tranmere or, you know, this sort of thing, or, 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 or the academy at home. So the only chance they get to play in a big stadium is if they get a game in the first team. Mm. And, of course, the other thing you get is lots of money. Do you know if Alex Inglethorpe is still coaching the Liverpool youth and if he still has that cap on the amount of money as a basic wage that Liverpool's young players can get? I don't know about that. I've not heard about that at all, no. But I do know that, you know, somebody told me some of the cars up at the academy would blow your mind away, you know, in the car park. So some of these young lads are certainly spending money on cars. I mean, some of them are getting ridiculous money. I mean, you never had a game in the first team. I've often said that if I was playing now, I'd have bought our golf club. Well, again, well, I heard you bought a car with the... Proceeds from your signing on fee? I did, yeah. I got £1,200. It's a lot of money in Aberdeen. I mean, mm. my first house cost £4,000. That was in 1968. So only three years ahead of that, 65, I'm getting a signing on fee of £1,200. I got another 1000 when I went to Port Elizabeth. 
So that was within a year. And, and between that, I worked in the factory. <laughs> so it was quite a change. So that was quite a lot of money for a boy of whenever it was, 20. So when I went up to Aberdeen and got the £1,200, I bought the Mini and I drove it out of the showroom. £535 it was. I even remember the number plate. CRS948C, White Mini. And it only just been invented by Alexander Isagonis, um, I think, at the time. And then the Mini Cooper came in. So that was quite the bee's knees, you know, driving out of Aberdeen in a brand new car, just signed for the Dons. And I was getting noticed, you know. And I can understand these young guys when they go to your head a bit. Because they did a bit to me. I was, you know, the man with the car and scored on my debut. Playing against Rangers, beat them 2-0, laid both the goals on. So the future was bright, you know, and then all of a sudden the door closed. And that can happen in football, and it's a short life. It was in those days. It happens nowadays. Michael Owen was an astonishing footballer who, again, um, leapt onto the scene at an international level and then had all the injuries, could still play, but you could tell his heart was really in his horses rather than in the football. Um, I'm I'm curious to know what happened because you started as a YTS at Liverpool uh, when Liverpool gazumped Aberdeen. You went down, uh, apparently you'd never left Scotland uh, and you had the golden whispers in your ear and uh, you've spent five years at Liverpool. But in 1961-62, George Eastham and Jimmy Hill overturned the maximum wage and so you yeah. could earn whatever you want. Was there therefore a discrepancy between some of the high earners like the St. John's and the Hunts and the Callahans, and some of the yeah. 17-year-olds who were polishing their boots or did it drive the youth players on? Yeah, well, my first wage at Anfield was £7.50 a week. And, but you see, you've got to remember, my, my lodgings cost £3.50 a week. That was for all the board, food, ironing, all the things that you would do at home to look after you. So I gave the landlady £3.50. Well, I would send £2 back to my mother because I felt guilty about leaving home because I mean, the two brothers were back at home with my father who was earning £9 a week. Um, and obviously I could have signed for Aberdeen and if I had signed for Aberdeen, I was going to get paid £6 a week. So I was three quarters of my father's wage. So there would have been fifteen. Fifteen pounds a week coming into the family home, and I took that out by going to Liverpool. Oh, so I felt a bit guilty. Yeah, so what I did, I put two pound in an envelope every week and sent it to my mum every single week for the five years I was there. I did that. I thought I have it. She got to depend on AC, so uh, that left me a couple of quid. But in the, that two pound, he could have a great time in Liverpool for two pound for a week. I mean, it was sixpence to get in the cinema, something like that. You know, how much for the cabin? How much to get into the cabin club? Sixpence a shilling or something. There was no, I mean, you could, two pounds, I could buy clothes and all sorts, you know. And again, two pounds every week. So, you know, if you didn't spend all your two pounds one week, you'd have another two pounds coming next week. So, yeah, so the point I'm making is we were on 750 a week. But when we became professionals at the age of 17, we stopped cleaning boots and started getting paid as full time professionals. Your wage went up, but it still only went up to about, I think, about 30 pounds a week. And I think the most I ever earned at Liverpool was about 50 quid a week. Well, the first team were earning £100 plus, but they were also getting a cloud bonus. £2 for every thousand over 23000 So if you add it up, it was, you know, that's another 60 quid. So when you get two games a week, that's £120. Monday, Wednesday they used to play, with FA Cup games and things. So they got £120 plus the basic wage. So Peter Thompson, who I was in digs with for two years, nearly three years, Peter would have a wage packet up to £300 a week. Not including his England appearances. Yes, exactly. And any yeah. adverti- advertising and things like that. But I'd be bringing on 50. That would be the difference. Until you break in the first team, and even Bobby Graham, who got in the first team, or Gordon Wallace for a few games, they wouldn't get an increase. 
you only get an increase at the end of the season if you prove yourself. So, you see, you might play four or five games in the first team, but you still be on the reserve team wages until you became a recognised first team player. But you're right about Jimmy Hill and um, George Easton, because I remember us being called into a meeting in the dressing room when the club uh, union representative, I think it was Jimmy Harrower, he, he told us that we'd be on strike, that we'd be on strike from the following week, and that not, none of us got to come in. And I think within 10 days later, I think the news broke that uh, they, con- they, they managed to achieve this uh, breakthrough. And then Johnny Haynes, I think it was, yes. Fulham, got the £100 a week, and that opened the doors then, you know. That, but the big change, really, in, in wages, I think, the big change was the Bosman ruling. When Mark Bosman took the freedom of contract and he won that freedom of contract, that was the big change. That then, that then is when the players became the bosses of the money. But it's in my day, the clubs were the bosses. And it's very you interesting know. to note that with the ESL, having Jordan Henderson say, well, we haven't been asked about this Super League, effectively get TFU next Tuesday. So the players have stopped their employers from pursuing a competition that would earn then the players more money, the club more money, but it would, of course, stiff all the fans who are, will spend the next 10 years... Well, I dread to think what will happen in Liverpool in the next 10 years, but that's for the government to um, pick it up. Um, but I'm sure you've got... Uh, Tranmere, I guess, Birkenhead is all red. Is, what's Birkenhead like these days? Well, they're starting, they're starting to develop it a bit now. It's always been a bit run down, Birkenhead. But there's some reasonable work going on now. Like most cities... A bit of investment going in, I think. So it's not quite the, um, the downtrodden city it was yeah. years ago. No, I've, I've been I to mean, Liverpool a couple of times and it's there. Yeah, all the great glories are there. And the, the yeah. dock development is fantastic. The Beetle Museum, the new the, the arena. Oh, it's amazing Liverpool compared to how it used to be when I arrived. I mean, you know, the city is just I mean, the tourist attraction, one of the biggest tourist attractions in the country. Mm-hmm. Because they've got the, cathedral, the cathedrals, the football grounds, the dock. Nightlife, hotels, and the cruise liners are coming in as well, which takes a lot of, well, not at the moment because of the pandemic, but in normal times, you've got cruise liners coming in, Queen Elizabeth and other things coming in August, Queen Elizabeth. So, you know, you've got a city there which is really buzzing, relatively speaking. I mean, you've got to temper everything with what's happened in the last 18 months with this pandemic. But, I mean, in normal times, I think. When I was in Liverpool, again, it was the epicenter as well because the Mersey beat was just starting. And all these groups were there playing, Jerry and the Pacemakers and uh, the Beatles especially. Uh, and, um, you know, everything was buzzing there. And the six, spring and 60s came in with Carnaby Street. And, you know, the whole thing was really, to be young in the 60s was great. Because music was great. The um, nightlife was great. And things got all changed a bit in the 70s. And each, each decade's got their own people. That, you know, you went on to... Uh, Slade and all that in the seventies, and then punk and all that. So every generation's got its things. And were you able uh, to go out and enjoy it relatively unmolested? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we were. Yeah, we weren't too bad. Nothing like this today because you didn't have the social media, Mm. which is the big difference, really. Today you didn't have people taking photographs with their phones and all that. So you could go quite. I mean, people would recognise you in the street, especially the big players like St John, and that they'd get them up for autographs. But generally speaking, Saturday night we go down to Royal Tiger or somewhere, and I mean, most people just, you know, let you get on with it, to be honest, you know. Uh, but, yeah, they were idolised. I mean, the big stars were still idolised. There were people queuing for autographs and club getting lots of requests. We used to go in the dressing room and the dressing room would be full of envelopes on a table, people writing in for things, you know. That's probably much worse today than it was then. But, yeah, it was still great to be around at that time, you know. I mean, Shankly was unbelievable. You know, he was just something, something else. 
I really believe I'll never be anybody else like him. Um, the passion and personality and just the way he listened to what he said and all the quotes, you know. He's uh, a character, without a doubt. He's, and Paisley he's... was the opposite. Yes, so I hear he was the quiet genius, according to a book about him. Yeah, it was. It was. He was just a thinker, a thinker, you know, and brilliant uh, diagnosing injuries and tactics and all that. And he didn't want Bill to leave. But, I mean, he got the job and he did a fantastic job, to be fair. The most successful manager in British football history, I think, for trophies. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, the, the most successful, not called Alec. Uh, I have a question from a Jeff Goulding, uh, because I'm speaking to him later in the year about his books. He's got one out yes. in the autumn. Uh, but he, right. he wanted me to ask you, you met in the Shankly Hotel um, and Jeff was expecting just to have enough material for an article about a kid who got released by Liverpool in the 1960s. And then you ended up telling your own life story and entrusting yeah. Jeff with telling it. Uh, so Jeff well, asks, no, was it emotional to tell this story of yours? Yeah, well, what it is, I, I, for quite a number of years, I've been writing articles in internet forums, Liverpool internet forums mainly, you know, and it's always had a good re- reaction, good response, lots of people that react. And, and quite a lot of times people would say, why do you write a book? Why do you write a book? You've got all these stories. And they did the after dinner speaking, doing all the Shankly stories with the accent and raising money for charity, doing all that, you know, and then Jeff had seen one of the articles, I think, if I remember, and, uh, and I'd seen something he'd written in these Football Times, I think it was, and I'm not sure, I think I might have rang him and said, uh, I like your writing, do you fancy meeting for a pint? And he said, oh, I've seen a couple of your articles, yeah, that would be wonderful. So we met at the Shankly Hotel, uh, I think it was um, in November, not November 2019, um, I think it was, yeah. And then we got sat talking, and Liverpool were playing West Ham at the time, not West Ham, sorry, Aston Villa, and they were losing. We, were, we had one eye on the television when we were talking, drinking a pint. And um, it was a game that Marnie scored a, a winner in the um, very last minute. Fifth. Yeah, and Jeff, we'd, le- we'd, left by, we'd left by that time because Jeff had to catch his train. And when he got home, he thought we, and he, he switched on his phone and now he'd won. So, but when we were talking in the, in the Bastion restaurant, I just started talking to him about some of the things he's listening. And after about five or ten minutes, he said, George, he said, there's a book here. You've got to write a book. Would you let me, would you let me help you? I said, well, I've read, I've read Stanley Park's story, and I think I've read Red Odyssey. I said, yeah, I like your style of writing, Jeff. I said, by all means, if you think there's enough material. He said, I think there's enough material for two books. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem is, at the time, we had to condense it. So I had to leave quite a lot out. Anyway, so I said, I'd be delighted if you want to do that. And I knew that Jeff had got the contacts with the publisher because he'd got a, a reputation with, the, with pitch publishing. And he said, to, I said, do you think they would go for it? He said, well, if I tell them to go for it, they'll go for it. Because they'll trust me to, um, to come up with the goods with you. I said, fair enough. So he got on to the publisher and uh, he got the okay to go ahead. And then we communicated amazing on, on email. When you write a book with a professional football, I would imagine the co-author tends to sit with him. Yes. And everything goes into the tape recorder. But that didn't happen with Jeff and I. Because I'd already written the book, actually. And the book was actually um, in my head, and, it, and most of it was on paper. And all I did is I got it all together, and I wrote everything down, and I sent him five or six, what I thought were the chapters. And then he came back to me and said, brilliant, that, really brilliant. And then he changed things around a bit, and then he came up with the title of the book, which shocked me, because 
I would have thought the book was going to be called The 12th Best Player in the World because that's what Shaq called me. Which I love. I love that story. When he released you, it, it was the ultimate let you down gently. It was. It was. And, and so most people that I, I met in golf club or people that I spoke to have always said, if you ever write a book, that should be the title, you know. But when I spoke to Jeff, said, no, that's not going to be the title. I said, how come? He said, well, if you go past Waterstones and you see a book in a window and it says the 12th best player in the world, <laughs> you're not that bothered. You're not that bothered about that. You wouldn't talk about the best player in the world. He said, it's not intriguing enough. That was his view, you know. So I said, well, what, what are you proposing? He said, I'm going to call it the Lost Champion Boy. And I thought, well, that's, that's really good, that, you know. I said, fair enough, Jeff, I'm with you on that. And then what we did is, he would, I would write him and send him the chapters. He would change him around a bit, add a bit, take a bit out, change it. But he didn't really change much what he did. The big thing Jeff did for me, he put the book into the proper chapters with the chapter headings. And he also, he also um, used his journalistic experience and his talent to change the words around to make it more interesting in some parts, make it more readable. But the, but the words are all mine um, with his input in terms of... Um, it would never have worked with the way I'd written it. The story would have been the same, but in a completely different way and not half as interesting. I I'm think sure. that this is a model. Paul Kimmage collaborated with Tony Cascarino on the book Full Time that becomes yes. uh, yeah, still a very well-garlanded autobiography. I know Eamon Dunphy wrote his book himself, and he's, he's a bit of a it character, is. Eamon Dunphy. Played against Eamon Dunphy for Manchester United yeah. Reserves. He was in the reserves there when I was in the reserves at Liverpool. We had a few tussles with him. Yeah, blonde lad, inside left he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's, yeah, yeah. Good really good book. Just talking, it's that and The Glory Game uh, from the 60s yeah. and 7th Hunt Davis's book. Uh, just about, yes. essentially, your employees. You're not superstars. You're superstars because of what you do on the pitch. Now football has become a branch of the entertainment business and you get the haircuts and the earrings and Marcus yes. Rashford's new book, which is, <laughs> this is, I uh, this, Yes. Very interesting how the footballer of today, Phil Phones, a lad from Stockport, how are they going to use their wealth to put many, much gained through the ticket sales that the club has and the TV subscriptions that the fans buy? How can they give back? And Liverpool should really be top notch. I know the foundation is there. Uh, and of course, Jordan Henderson's doing really well as the captain of the club. But the new breed of yeah. young professional. Uh, like someone like Jaden Sancho or Jude Bellingham, who are now both playing abroad, they've got yeah. to consider both posterity and the present. So in a way, aren't you glad that the younger footballer has so much money at his disposal rather than sending two quid back up to Aberdeen so that your mum can oh, feed yes. the electricity meter? Oh, yes, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, I mean, they deserve it because it's a short life for them. I mean, none of them are going to play much beyond 32, 33. Actually, Milner, you know, your, your career's going to go downhill, even like Rooney, when you get to a certain age. So you've got to have something to do for the rest of your life. So it's not going to just have money and laundry about swimming pools. You've got to be able to do something with that money. Like, this Rashford has been doing something with the school meals and things, putting a bit back. And in Liverpool, they've got Spirit of Shankly and food yes. banks and all the rest. There's a lot of things happening. The fans are pushing. So, yeah, it'd be nice to see some of the players... And I'm sure a lot of them do give money to charity, but you don't hear about it. You know, but uh, no, to answer your question, yeah. The other question I'll answer is about being emotional writing the book. Yes, it was very emotional. When you're sitting down writing it, I was writing all down about, not necessarily about the football, but my life before the football. About my father and, you know, how he was killed in Normandy and things like that, about childhood. And my mother. 
And when you're writing it all down, it gets to you a bit, you know, when you look back, because you don't think about your life as you go through it. But when you look back, and Jeff said to me from the beginning, because um, I said to him, I'm not doing this for money, Jeff, because we're not going to, I might get a new set of golf clubs out. I said, I'm doing it for the legacy so my family can see, and my grandchildren can see what I did and what I achieved and how I came through my life to get where we are now. And he said, well, yeah, it's a bit, I said, yeah, I mean, I think he found it emotional as well, to be honest, because mm. he's a big Liverpool fan, that's been for many years. And I think he treated it in his own way as quite an honour to write it. He said that to me himself. In fact, we're meeting up on the 12th of June for a pint. Oh, I said to him when I was, I was at death's door. I was at death's door and uh, they were all very worried about me. But my wife was brought down with my son and he told me I wouldn't live through the night and to be prepared for it. You know, I mean, that was really dramatic. And Jeff says, when things got a bit better, he said, as soon as you're up and about, we're going to meet for a pint, celebrate the book. He didn't have a chance to celebrate it, hmm. really, because I was in a hospital with a heart um, operation. And then as soon as I got over that, I was going to meet him. And then I was hit with this bronchial this pneumonia. So it would be a nice nice day for us on a, on, in June to meet up for a pint and uh, get together. Because there's a few things coming up soon. I've got a big signing thing coming up on the 25th of July at the Shankly Eddie. Hotel Tia, which is signing shirts and photographs and things, and the money's going to go to charity. Gordon Wallace and myself are doing it with a lad called Mav Alexander. So um, I was hoping I'd be fit for that, and I think it will be now, to be honest. So it's that's at the end of July. Fab. So yeah, it was a very emotional thing to do for both of us, I think, uh, Johnny. That's all well and good, but I'm worried about your short game. Because you haven't played golf for so long, I hope you haven't <laughs> lost your touch. <laughs> if the touch was ever there the if the touch yeah. was ever well what do you play off oh I got down to 12 but That's I mean fine. Uh, I'd be up by 18 now or something I think you know to be honest yeah. got this new handicap system as well I've got to get the grips with I don't think I'll be playing much before August to be honest I mean I'll, I'll go to the driving range maybe and just chip a few balls but I've got to be very careful I'm on quite a, quite a tight recovery programme schedule um, you know with a doctor because uh, I've done remarkable at the moment. I'm far ahead of what it should be, apparently. But you've got to take it one step at a time. Exactly. Well, your lungs sound great. Yeah, it's really been good. This Again, I still have a bit of a residual cough. Probably when I finish talking to you now, I'll probably cough a bit. But it's nothing serious. It's just residual. Yeah, it's just it's all around. lingering on the bronchioles. and. Yeah, yeah. six weeks ago. But, oh, I mean, yeah. when I had this, uh, this pneumonia, they couldn't, really, they couldn't understand what the actual bacteria was. They couldn't find it. And yeah, antibiotics weren't working. And I was in a bit of a hole, really, because they, they, they gave me steroids in the end, and mm. the danger was that steroids would reduce my immune system, and that would stop, stop the uh, immune system, find the bacteria, and that would go through. So it was all very technical. But I've got a wonderful consultant, um, and he wrote me a beautiful letter. I just got it last week, um, you know, saying how pleased he was that I pulled through, and he was worried about me, but he was always confident, I think, and sneaking suspicion I would make it, because I never gave up. And uh, I was determined not to give up because uh, too much to live for. Indeed. Well, thank God. Some would say he's still watching over you. Do you think Bill Shankly is keeping you alive? I wouldn't go as far as to say that, but I think his standards that he set me is keeping me alive. I was fighting the spirits and never give up type of thing, yeah. I remember once when we were playing five sides in the, in the uh, Melwood and it always stuck with me this. We used to have cricket stumps for, for goalposts and... Uh, I remember he chipped the ball over us. We were just kids, 15, 16. He was playing with uh, the trainers, you know, Bob Paisley and Joe Fagan. He used to have a match against us. And he chipped the ball over and he was running towards 
the goal. And I ran back and ran back and just, just before it crossed the line, and I slid in through the mud and tipped it behind the post. The next minute I feel this hand ruffling my hair. And Shangri says, there you go, son, see what happens when you never give up. Oh. See what happens. Now, I always remember that, you know, when you never give up ever, son. And he got that message loud and clear to all of us, and it stuck with me. And I think it's a good thing to have, because things can get quite low for a lot of people, and I think you think, well, what's the point? But there's always, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel if you look for it. That's how I've tried to do anyway over the years. Because there were a few times I've been knocked back in my career in football and in my business career, and I've always just said, well, right, let's get on with it and fight back and, and uh, see where we go. And I've been very lucky. A wonderful family, nice home. Good standard of living, so it's all been worthwhile, really. Here, here. I'm still, on, I'm still only seventy-six. Precisely. There must be some Liverpool legends from the forties who are still going at ninety. I'll tell you what. The sad thing is, of the team I played with, um, you can go through that team, and Tommy Lawrence died with dementia. Ronnie Moran died with dementia. Jerry Byrne died with dementia. Tommy Smith died with dementia. Bob Paisley died with dementia. Billy Stevenson's got dementia. Ron Yates has got dementia, and I don't think he'll be alive much longer. And even the only ones that are still alive and well are Ian Callaghan, Gordon Milne, Gordon Wallace himself. Bobby Graham's got dementia. You know, so there's a lot of them that have been suffering from this terrible illness for whatever reason. Um, I don't know why, unless it's something to do with heading the ball. Who knows? So yeah, there's not many of us left, really, from that team. If you look at that photograph on the, uh, the top of the book mm-hmm. in the front... It's about 20, Alfie Harris. If you go through that, Alfie Harris has passed away. Tommy Smith. Chris Lawler, of course. Chris is, Chris is always, physically he's not well with arthritis. That's a difference, you see. Now look at Chris Lawler. He played 600 games in the first team. Seven years without a missed a game. And yet he's got to try and beg for 20 grand to get an, an operation because he waited two years in the NHS. Well, the PFA will be able to help. I hope the PFA look back because it is an industrial disease. Dawn Astle should be given like a peerage. This is clearly a terrible, yeah. terrible thing. Those balls could kill someone and I'm amazed yeah. that they didn't. What was it like playing with those balls on a wet day? Well, look at the England team as well. Yeah, the England team, half the England team won the World Cup. Bobby Charlton. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the full... Ray Wilson... Yeah. Uh, Jackie Charlton, you know, I mean, Bobby Charlton's got it now as well, hasn't he? I mean, so uh, Martin Peters, Bobby Styles. I mean, it's ridiculous. It must be, well, I was lucky. I didn't really play with the heavy ball. That was more the 50s, towards the end of the 50s. By the early 60s, the, the ball came in with a coated, a coated leather, which it didn't have the lace, which is like the little round thing where you blew it up. And when the ball went in the water, it was, the moisture would run off it. Okay. The difference with the leather ball was the leather ball held the moisture and had the lace and it was heavy. Can you imagine these guys like Billy Little, Dixie Dean, people like that, when they headed the ball, they would take the head off. When I was a kid, fair enough, when I was at school, we used to play with the heavy ball. So you, you would get the head in then, but uh, the 60s was the start of the floodlights and they played with the white ball and it got a bit more sensible, you know. The boots mm-hmm. got a bit lighter. Not the big things you used to wear in the 50s with, you know, toe caps. Mm-hmm. And of course, nowadays... Nowadays, there's no such thing as tackling or heading. No, you can't tackle at all, can you? I mean, no. you, 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 you're still heading, but you're, doing, you're trying to stop heading in training, aren't you? Uh, yes, especially at under-15 level, yeah. Yeah, I think that's wise, because you're right, there must be, 
Yeah, Jeff Arsenal's daughter does deserve a medal. I mean, you know, it's uh, so many. Alan Shearer's tried to do something about it. It seems to just could drag on and on and on, and nothing seems to be done. Although I think at Melwood, at Melwood, and the houses they're building in Melwood now, they're going to have some dementia patients there as well. Oh, or dementia okay. sufferers. Yeah. I think they've got Jimmy, Jimmy Carragher and Robbie Fowler have bought Melwood, the training part. Oh, yes. Yeah, I read that the other day. Yeah. For, a, for an academy. And Beth Tweddle, mm. the gymnast as well. So the rest of the stadium, the rest of the area is going to have affordable housing from a company called Taurus. And some of that's going to be for, for people that have got early stage dementia. So. But that's got nothing to do with the football. That's just, that's just been done by a business. So you're right. I think the PFA should be doing a lot more. Yeah, we'll see. They're under new management now. One of the things that Jeff said in this great chat with these football times, which um, emphasises the role of Bill Shankly, which is why I haven't duplicated it too much. It is all, of course, in George Scott's book, The Lost Shankly Boy. Uh, But you mentioned that Dennis Law is a hero. And Dennis has been, there was a film or a documentary made about him. He's obviously getting old. I read his book and he went off to Italy very, very young, played in Turin. So he really yeah. was a superstar. He couldn't go anywhere without being mobbed. And, of course, very Scottish. Is he from Aberdeen? Went to the same boys' club as me. Aberdeen Lads Club. He was there about four or five years before me. Because oh. um, Dennis is uh, about four, four, maybe five years older than me. But, yeah, he was my big idol. I mean, you're right, he was a superstar. The first real superstar, I think. Him and George Best, I suppose. But, but even Dennis was before George. He went over to Turin. And then he came back to Man United, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, and he was at Man City as well. He went from Man City to Turin, didn't he? I think he went from Huddersfield to Man City. I think. Yes. Yeah. He started at Huddersfield. Um, and that was Bill. Bill took him down from Aberdeen, same as me. So it was the same as me. Dennis came down at fifteen. He was. He used to go to Paris Academy in Aberdeen, and um, he went down. I remember reading the papers about him going down to um, play for this guy Shankly at Huddersfield. And of course, he got in the first team very young. I think he was sixteen. Made his debut. And he was very small even then, like a big, he was a great talent. You could see the way he hit the ball, the way he could look. And I just loved Dennis. You know, I, knew, I knew his brother, Joey, and got introduced to him when he came back to Aberdeen and went spoke to him. So I've known him quite a long time as a kid, but, you know, it was the first time I really met him officially was when Shankly took me across that Goodison Park to meet him. And I was dancing on hot, dancing on calls mm. because I had a 10-minute chat with Dennis Law. In the press, just outside the dressing room after the game. Yeah, he still had his kit on, covered in mud. Um, and Shanky just dragged him out of the dressing room. But uh, it was a great, great experience for a kid. Am I? Of course, I got to know him quite well over the years. Um, and yeah, he's, he's getting on a bit now. And I think he's into his early 80s. Yeah. And not looking up. I saw that documentary and he looks a bit weak. At the moment, I, I don't know, but uh, he's, he's a good age. He's, he's getting all the light, all of us, you know. But he's a wonderful player. And it's great he's got that statue at Old Trafford, you know, immortalised forever, uh, isn't he? Yeah, it was the in the news. Job. It was in the news because all the United fans were decorating it with scarves and posters. And uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. without, yeah. without yeah. Best Lauren Charlton, that club might not be uh, what it is. Um, yeah. What was the view... Uh, that you had and the people of Aberdeen had uh, in 1958 when the Munich air disaster took all those kids? Oh, devastated. As a boy, I was only like, I was born in 44, so I'd be one, um, 10, 11. And I remember the newspaper and the television, I was in tears. I mean, when I've seen the pictures of Duncan Edwards, especially Duncan Edwards. I mean, he was only 18 and already he was playing for England. And they had a great team. I mean, they had a wonderful Busby Babes. And it was just so tragic to see Matt Busby in an oxygen tent and 
you know, I just couldn't believe it. It was amazing how they actually came back, got to the cup final, yeah, with a patched up team. And then, um, of course, it was built up again. But uh, that was terrible. Mm-hmm. It was a disaster. Most people, like, whether you were a Man United fan or not, I'm not sure there was the same partisanship then as it is now. I think most people love football, and I think it was just nationwide. I think everybody was shocked when it happened because they were in the semi-final of the European Cup, and they're just coming back on a plane, normal plane ride. And of course, whatever happened in the snow cost all those lives. It was terrible. Yeah, shocking. But th- this was the team that uh, the Youth Cup started in fifty-two-three, and United won the first four or five. Were you conscious yeah. that if Liverpool had won in '63? that you would have the medals that all these great Man U players or yeah. should have been Man U players. Yeah, that's why I'm so nervous. But I've got this in front of me now. FA Youth, FA Youth Challenge Cup, runners up 1962-63. It's got the Football Association badge on it um, and the rose. And it's a plaque. I don't know whether the winners got the same thing which said winners rather than a medal. So it's a, it's a, it's a bronze plaque. Very nice. You know, it looks really nice. But the only difference would be the arrow says runners up and they'll say... When I bit in your heart, it's a big difference. I will, record books, it's a big... I will ask Harry Redknapp where he keeps his. Uh, he probably gave yeah. it to his, his nephew, Frank Lampard, because Lampard is a player who never gives up as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he is. He is, without a doubt, yeah. Mm. Great player. Great player. And he's done such a lot in the game as well, you know. I mean, Harry was a good player. He was, he shouldn't, people know him more as a manager. Well, he was a good player as well. I mean, he was only young when he was into the first team at uh, West Ham. It was a good, that, that final was a great final, one of the best finals, I would think. It was over two legs, but I mean, 6-5 over two legs is not a bad entertainment. Is no, it? it's great entertainment. Is there footage of it? No. Mm. You know, there's only one piece of footage of me playing, and it's on YouTube. And it's, it's um, Tranmere, it's Barnsley, Barnsley v Tranmere Rovers, 1969 at Um Somebody sent it to me in black and white. It's commentated on by Barry Davis. Oh, wow. And I got man of the match. by Freddie Truman was writing for the people. And he gave me nine, I think eight stars or nine stars, man of the match. He used to do that thing. He used to give the player ratings. And as a couple of nights, it's only half an hour. It was, a, it was like the equivalent of the match of the day at the time uh, on ITV. And, uh, you know, quite a big crowd there as well. And I was quite surprised at the size of the crowd. It's in black and white. But I remember he says, and young Scots having a great game, feeding Robins on the right wing. <laughs> and it's just so strange. But my kids had never seen me play. And Jeff had never seen me play. When Jeff saw this, he said, I've got goosebumps watching it, you know, um, 50 years ago. You know, but there's no other, I don't think I've got any other film of me playing because it just wasn't the same. You know, match of the day didn't come in until 1963 or 4, I think. Mm-hmm, 64. Oh, my great friend Gordon, he, he scored the, the first goal ever on match of the day. And they beat Arsenal, I think, um, 3-2, and he scored twice, I think. Oh, wow. That was one of his claims to fame. Also, his, his other claim to fame is he scored Liverpool's first ever goal in the European Cup at Reykjavik in uh, 1962. He scored two that day. He beat Reykjavik up in uh, Iceland. And they battered him on the second leg. He was injured for the second leg, and Bobby Graham got a debut. So they're all giving debuts except me on the mates, but there you go, that's how it works. Well, you can blame Shanks for that, or you can just put it down to one of those things. And uh, it's, it's delightful. Thank you for this, uh, especially because you've had two quite difficult uh, conditions in the last year. Um, and it, it is a delight. I will quote you with uh, pleasure. 
in From Kids to Champions, which is a book that I'm writing about the Youth Cup, because my argument is that we should take take this contest seriously, um, because the stars of tomorrow uh, could well be Tommy Smith. Yeah, they will be looking at that game last night. There's a few players in there that I think will be uh, quite big stars in the future, you know, when they, when they mature. you probably get about two or three. You're not going to get... I mean, it's, it's just nature of the nature of the game. It's like these academies, you know, you get loads of people going through the academies, but you only get very few actually get through to the top. But uh, they only need a few, don't they? The big clubs only need a few to come through and they make a lot of money. Yeah. You just need one of your own. Six of your own or seven of your own uh, would be yeah, fair. United were lucky with the, uh, the golden generation they got through when Alex Ferguson... Well, that was Eric Harrison, players like who also had dementia, Eric Harrison. Did he? Mm. Oh, yeah, God, yeah. That's another one, you see. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Mm. Yeah, let's well, fingers crossed they can get something done about that anyway. No, it's been it's been more than a joy, and I hope you enjoy a couple of pints with Jeff Goulding, who co-wrote, although he just kind of crossed the T's, on The Lost Shankly Boy, which is the tale of the 12th best Liverpool player in the world, um, <laughs> George Scott, uh, which is available for, um, it retails at about £20, but you can get it half price, or you can get it for a tenner if you want an electronic version. Um, and uh, do you have grandchildren? Have the kids had kids? Yeah, I've got four grandchildren, four boys. Oh, and have they read yeah. the book? Are they old enough to read the book? They've all read the book, yeah. They've all read the book, you know. Even yes. my wife read it, and she's not really into football, but she spent a whole Saturday reading it. Came home, she was in tears. <laughs> but there you go. I mean, at the end of the day, it is an emotional business writing autobiography. Actually, the book's been, rec- it's been um, uh, recommended by Pitch Publishing for the um, Sports Book of the Year Awards at the Daily Telegraph. Ooh. Whether it'll get to the shortlist, I don't know. I think they announce it next month. Jeff and I both think it's an honour to be nominated. Because picture a big publishing house and they've got a lot of a lot of titles. And to pick this book to move forward, I think, uh, is a great honour. So we'll see what happens there. And Jeff's a fantastic writer. He's, he's really talented. His new book, by the way, is coming out in September. It's called The Untouchables. The great team of the 1920-21 season, uh, when Liverpool won the back-to-back league titles. And there's some unbelievable characters that played in that team. And it's about their stories, where they come from the Great War and then came into the Liverpool team. Uh, one of the guys in that team is a guy called Ephraim Longworth. And I talk about Ephraim in my book, actually, because I met him. And I used to play snooker against him when he was about my age as I am now. And I was about 16, 15, 17. And he was a legend at Liverpool. He played um, 400 games for the club. He was captain of England. And he was captain of Liverpool when they played the, the 1914 Cup final at the Crystal Palace against Burnley, which they lost 1-0. But then in 1920, 21, they had Elisha Scott in goal who's a famous goalkeeper, and they had a wonderful team, Tom Bromelow and people like that. And they were legends. And Tom Bromelow, the party, there had 30,000 people at his wedding in, in the streets. So that will be a very interesting book. He's writing with a guy called Kieran Smith. And Kieran runs a, runs a website called LFC History, Liverpool, Liverpool Historical. And uh, it's a really nice website about Liverpool History. And he, he's got together with Jeff and the writer of that book. So that'll be Jeff's sixth book, I think, or fifth. He's done the, the trilogy Red Odyssey 1, 2 and 3. Champions Under Lockdown, Stanley Park Story, Lost Shankly Boy. This will be his sixth, I think. So he's quite prolific now. And he's, he's holding down a full-time job in the NHS as well. well I, I'm glad I'm going to have to schedule uh, our chat to promote this book around it. But I'll speak to him in August, by which time uh, Liverpool will be... Do you go straight into the Champions League? Yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, of course, Scotland will have given England a very, very good game. Dare you predict what will happen? Scotland to win, of course. 
Naturally. Uh, George Scott, a pleasure. Thank you so much and enjoy your rounds of golf over summer. Thanks, Johnny. It's a great pleasure talking to you.